Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast, a general practice podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Illuminating Primary Care is here to quiz primary care leaders to offer professional knowledge, experience and insight on the biggest topics in general practice. It's the podcast to listen to if you work in primary care. Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. Hi there and welcome to the uh, Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. Uh, I am your host for this week, uh, Matthew O'Key, and uh, I am joined by jo- uh, Dr. Joe Davies, uh, an experienced GP in the West Midlands. Morning, Joe. Hi. Hi, Matthew. Hi there. Glad to have you. So this week we are going to be talking about burnout in general practice. It is a polarizing topic, one that's getting increasing media coverage as well, and rightly so. Um, so, Joe, what is burnout and, and is, is it on the rise? Um. Yeah, it most certainly is on the rise, particularly in the medical profession. Um, Burnout is a combination of both physical and emotional exhaustion. It's actually only been recognised by um, WHO um, in the last few years, since 2019, and they call it an occupational phenomenon. Um, And it's usually associated with long-term stress in the workplace. But I would add that I think it's not just workplace um, driven and there's a blur between our workplace and our home life responsibilities hmm. and I think sometimes it can be the pressures of work as well um, and the pressures of home life um, that can all contribute to to burnout it's definitely on the rise um, the um, the GMC run a survey each year of trainers and trainees so this is only a small proportion of GPS but there's been a massive spike in the number of trainers um, who are deemed at uh, moderate to high risk of burnout based on the answers to a number of questions that we get asked each year. That's gone up to 53%, which is astonishing. And I suspect a fair number of them are still carrying on, um, but are deemed to be at high risk of burnout. Um, And that's a massive jump from the last time the question was asked a few years back. No, indeed. What do you think is contributing to the increase? Um, well, there's the really obvious things. Um, I think that COVID has definitely played its part. Um, uh, you know, that was an enormous pressure for everyone. Um, and everyone sort of rose to the challenge. And I think it's it's sort of play, it's having its effect now. Um, but I think it was an issue even before um, COVID. I think work pressures were becoming really extreme, particularly in general practice. Um uh, the workload was increasing, patients' expectations were changing, um, starting to look after a much more elderly population with more demanding needs and still being expected to shoehorn that into a normal general practice model. Um, but now with the pandemic, um, you know, you've had you had over a year, if not 18 months of patients not being um, managed in terms of preventative medicine, long-term um, conditions weren't being managed appropriately because the priority was um, to to limit managing acute presentations, and and so all of those patients are now uh, needing extra care. Their health has deteriorated, um, and there are multiple issues to be sorted out. Again, being shoehorned into the normal uh, model of general practice with no extra time, um, and then there's been um, a gradual decline in the number of available GPs. Some others that have already burnt out. It's a vicious cycle, really. Um, and um, and I think also what, what doesn't help is is, is doctor bashing, uh, which has happened. Um, and certainly general 
practitioners are being portrayed as being lazy and not working very hard, when actually I think we would all agree we've been working harder than ever since the pandemic. Why, why do you think that is? Because going off on a, a kind of subject tangent for, for a second, Dr. Bashin uh, could be, I think we could do an episode on that alone. What do you think's contributed to that in the media? Um, and obviously then with that percolated down to the general public? Well, I think it's the sort of mixed messages from the government as well. Um, uh, you know, Matt Hancock was all in favour of um, making um, general practice much more digitally savvy. Um, and we really rose to that challenge during COVID and um, kept patients safe by keeping them away from the surgery, but still managing them all remotely. And the amount of technology that was embraced within a matter of weeks to try and facilitate that. Um, but now uh, the general feeling amongst patients, and I can understand this, is that they want things to go back to the way they were before the pandemic. Um and be able to see their GP when they want to see them, and they feel that we're hiding behind our computers, and we're not um, we're not offering enough appointments, and that's being reinforced in the media. And the government has also said that we need to be um, seeing more patients, and I think we all are, and we're doing the best we possibly can. But what has become apparent is, is there are things that we can do remotely um, to allow us to be more efficient. Um, we can sort of triage more patients if we do that remotely and only see the patients that really need to be seen. But patients aren't happy with that because they want to go back to the old model. And we're not being supported um, by government and to say that actually we need to be progressing and moving forward and changing how we work to address the changing needs and the changing demands of the profession. I agree, unfortunately not. Uh, Coming back to, to burnout, what effect does it have on a GP? Well, I'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, The initial effect for any GP that has burnout and has to have time off work, and I speak from personal experience, is your immediate feeling is a sense of complete guilt and failure because you've let your patients down and you've let your practice down and you've let your colleagues down. And that's an overwhelming feeling. And I think that when you first diagnosed with burnout when that happens you kind of sink a bit lower before you get better because that's the first thing you feel but you physically have no energy to give um but yeah I'll come on more about how that actually personally affected me in a moment okay before we come on to that then uh we're going to talk about what effect it has on a GP what effect does it have on a practice oh it's it's enormous um it it sort of uh, perpetuates a vicious cycle because if a GP goes off, someone else has to cover that work. And even if they get locums in to cover that work, that doesn't cover the whole role of a uh, sort of um, salaried or partner in a practice because there's all the administrative side of things. And that's that that immediately gets passed on to the other doctors. And that will have an effect on morale and perpetuate the problem and perhaps lead to more um, staff sickness. Um, but, yeah, and that's, I suppose, what feeds the sense of guilt and failure for the GP that goes off. Yeah, no, indeed. Uh, so coming on to your own experiences then, talk me through your experience of, of, of being signed off and when did you first notice signs that uh, there was something potentially wrong and, and, and how did they manifest themselves? Yeah, well, I think the big issue, and I think this is a huge issue for anyone suffering with burnout, um, is that you don't really have any insight. You don't really realise you're burning out at the time. You, you're struggling on. I think in hindsight, I knew I was stressed, um, but I hadn't sort of recognised how much that was impacting on me, both professionally and in my home life. 
Um, I realized I probably had signs a good two years before I went off work, um, before my GP signed me off. Um, I was actually working as a partner in my practice and had been for the preceding seven years. Um, but um, I chose to change to become a salaried GP in the hope that that would improve things for me and improve my stress levels because I was really struggling, particularly after I had my second child, to cope with the 24-hour, 24-7 pressure of being a, a partner. It's never-ending. There's always something that needs to be discussed or dealt with. Even when you're working part-time, you're sort of available full-time to deal with the pressures of the practice. So I chose to um, change to become a salary GP, but I had a sense of loyalty to my patients and staff, so I stayed on at the same practice in the hope that that would improve my stress levels. Um, but actually, it made things worse because I lost any sense of control as I wasn't a partner anymore. Um, and yeah, it, the more I took away, the more stressed I became. And I think that's a real sign that things aren't brilliant. For myself personally, there were a lot of other pressures. Um, obviously, we had we, this all happened in the middle of COVID. Um, I had a husband who was working in intensive care as a consultant incredibly concerned about him hardly saw him for six months um, so was looking after my children on my own a lot of the time and trying to work um I um also had a uh, was supporting my um brother and um his wife who unfortunately had uh, metastatic breast cancer and that was taking its toll um trying to support them and my nephews so there was a lot a lot of things going on for myself that led to my eventual being signed off work um and what was interesting was um i i didn't have insight um i knew i was stressed as i said before but i didn't have insight and what was really interesting was i'm a trainer in my practice and it was um sometime in september 2020 um when um sorry 2021 when um an st2 had just joined the practice they they often sit in as part of their induction and watch us when we're consulting. So actually, they get this this privilege of seeing GPs working um, in 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 their rooms. Normally, we're all working in isolation, really, and no one watches what we're doing. And this GP, uh, this trainee, who was, uh, um, um, you know, he'd had previous experience working in A and E, so um, he wasn't fresh faced, I would say. Um, but he had the um, strength to say to me. Um, within two weeks of working in the practice, did I think I was burnt out? And I was really shocked. I was shocked by what he said. Um, but actually, two weeks later, I uh, was off work and burnt out. And in hindsight, I wish someone else had had the strength to say that to me because I think the signs were all there a lot longer than that. Um, everyone knew that I was a bit stressed, but we were all stressed. But no one had had the, the courage to say that to me. And actually, I think I'm very grateful to that trainee because that would have taken a lot of guts to say to a trainer, are oh, you burnt out? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it I can it actually imagine. shows how much more awareness there probably is of the problem amongst trainees than there are amongst um, GPs working. Well, hopefully that will only you know provide dividends in, in future if it is becoming more commonplace in discussion circles and uh you know reviews and appraisals uh, so yeah fingers crossed so on a you know a, a day a daily basis how was it affecting you you clinically and, and how was it affecting you personally as well so uh clinically i was just exhausted um 
I was going to work, trying to go to work for a rest because things at home were very difficult. And then I was trying to come home from work and have a rest. So there was no rest, basically. Um, I'd stay in bed till the absolute latest in the mornings because I just could not get myself out of bed. Um, uh, going to work quite disheveled, really, not looking after myself. I was staying later at work, um, double checking everything I was doing. I was really quite fearful of making mistakes. I'd become really quite self-critical, um, close to tears all the time. Um, and when I talk about it in hindsight, why didn't I do something sooner? But, it, you know, it's hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? I was really irritated um, with staff, particularly when I was duty doctor, which was really out of character for me. And worst of all, I was developing resentment towards my patients, um, really quite overwhelmed by all their problems. And the big thing was I was totally drained of empathy um, for my patients, which, you know, is... Uh, you know, for me, empathy for patients is is critical. And to have none of that and to just not just to try and get through each consultation rather than actually, you know, providing care and empathy for patients. You know, I don't think I compromised their care in any way, but I wasn't delivering care the way I wanted to and the way I've always always done in the past. And at home, I had absolutely no patience for my children on the days off because I did work part-time so arguably someone might say well you work part-time why did you get burnt out you weren't working as hard as the rest of us but home home with the kids um I had no energy for my three-year-old bless him could just about sit in front of the telly with him um but couldn't engage with him couldn't play with him didn't have any sense of enjoyment as a mother um um and yeah it it yeah and I couldn't go out socially, didn't feel I had anything to contribute when I went out socially. And I remember saying to my husband, um, this feels like surviving rather than living. But even then, I didn't identify that as burnout. I just felt that pressures were going to ease perhaps when the children were older and I just needed to put my head down and get on with it. Yeah, and I think it's so easy to be trapped in that tunnel vision um, when you are insular and experiencing it yourself and uh I think that kind of nicely segues into the next question really you know at what point did you raise the alarm and and discuss it with fellow partners and colleagues um, which is obviously such a critical step in actually starting recovery yeah I I didn't uh raise the alarm I, I, I've thought a lot about this question and I think I um I had had a few conversations with my practice manager where I'd felt stressed but didn't recognize it as burnout and I think at one in one of those conversations, she'd actually said to me, do you think you should have a bit of time off? And I remember saying at the time, I don't want to take any time off. Don't want to let anyone down. I, I need to keep, you know, uh, that wouldn't be fair on my colleagues that are all stressed as well. And it wouldn't be fair on my patients. So what actually led to me having the time off was um, I, my son was off nursery with um, gastroenteritis. Um, and... I was forced to um, be at home. Well, not forced, but that forced me to be at home with him because he couldn't go to nursery. Um, added to the stresses of how am I going to work from home with my three-year-old, but need to work as well, trying to work remotely. Then I got sick as well, which is really unusual. And this is a real key thing about burnout is that your immune system gets completely depleted as well. And so, I mean, I've got pretty robust system 
um, normally or over all the years of being exposed to all the bugs in the general practice setting. But I came down with his stomach bug and actually that forced me to stop. I had to take to my bed. My husband had to come home because he had to look after my son. I took to my bed, felt really, really ill um, uh, and and then pretty much stayed in bed for two weeks. Um, I couldn't, even though I was better from the gastroenteritis, I was in constant tears, just could not stop crying um, and couldn't face going back to work. And I spoke to my GP um, about three or four days later, explained to him and he said, and he put this in a really nice frame, he said, you've had, a, you've had an adrenaline crash. You've, you've had to stop because you couldn't go to work and you've had an adrenaline crash and you need some time off. And that's how it all led from there, really. Um, and I ended up having um, eight months off work. Um, but my GP put me in touch with practitioner health um, who were amazing. Uh, I was um, assigned to a GP who works with practitioner health uh, remotely. She works down in Sussex. Um, she spent over an hour talking to me as an initial assessment and we talked through everything that had been going on and um, I felt listened to and I felt really supported and uh, the guilt that I was feeling um, about letting my colleagues down, she reassured me about that. You know, if you get to the point where you can't physically get out of bed in the morning, how can you care for your patients? And, um, and things went from there and I've come out the other side. Um, so it's a positive story in the end. I think that's the key thing to try and reinforce throughout it because obviously there's the somber turns, but uh, I think the the positivity is equally key to highlight for others in a similar situation or others maybe at the start of that um, of that journey as well. And, you know, for those that perhaps maybe not there yet, but feeling those kind of pressures rise, is burnout preventable? I think it is. Um, yes, um, but I think uh, we all need to learn to recognise the the signs um, before you get to the stage that I got to, really. Um, and I think the government really needs to wake up to the spike in burnout um, risk, um, as identified by that GMC survey, actually. Um, that's um, They need to really recognize particularly having come through this pandemic that the well-being of nhs staff is an absolute priority and that any interventions that can be put in place prior to someone going off sick is far better than you know you know if, if this isn't if this doesn't change if you think you've got 53 percent of trainers considered moderate to high risk of burnout if that if all of them go through what i've gone through that's a massive workforce crisis um so yes it is preventable um, it's, it's the, make it a priority it's the knock-on effect though isn't it when i think it's it's really interesting looking at it specifically from a trainer point of view because uh it's that trickle down effect of those trainers and their interactions with their trainees um you know particularly if there's more than one trainee in that practice um you know it's a domino effect of how many more can that can that hit so uh yeah i think that survey is pretty telling what what can a GP do on a, on a personal basis um, to to manage their stress levels? Um, I think um, being open and honest about it, recognizing it's an issue, um, and recognizing I think that everybody's different and everyone copes with stress differently. We might all be under the same pressure at work, but we might all have other pressures outside of work. So 
the attitude I must keep going on because all my colleagues are keeping going on is wrong. And I think we all need to see each other as individuals, despite the fact we're all doctors. Um, and the important thing is to make time for ourselves. I think it's absolutely key um, to do that in whatever way. For me, it's been yoga, running, finding a hobby. I hadn't had any hobbies for years. And I think if you spoke to a lot of doctors, a lot of doctors will say the same. Hobbies have gone out the window, particularly mums that work as doctors because we're childcare providers as well. So we don't make any time for ourselves. And um, I think it, it allows you to gain a little bit more perspective if you're not constantly thinking about work. Um, the thing that a lot of GPs have done, um, and again, this is affecting, perhaps affecting continuity in the general practice workforce, but GPs have done this as they've all started working reduced uh, sessions as the only way to cope because you can't cope with 12 hour days at work and do that five days a week. So you can just about cope with that if you do it three or four days a week. So that's what some GPs are doing. And although you might feel exhausted in that time uh, when you're not working, if you've not got childcare responsibilities in that time, when you've got a home, find a hobby, do something just for you. Um, yeah. It, but it, each individual is different. Yeah. That's a really good suggestion. Uh, what can a practice do looking at it from a practice point of view what can they do to better support their gps pastorally it's difficult isn't it i think um i think making um the well-being of staff the number one priority is really key um the encouraging team building encouraging um meeting up together as a team away from work not in the rushed environment of a day-to-day -day, but um, perhaps social evenings, um, regular coffee meetings, and making those a priority, not if we have time, um, just so that you get that mutual team support. And obviously all that fell by the wayside during the pandemic. We were discouraged from spending too much time with each other, even in the practice, to prevent the risk of spreading infection. But that way of working has changed now, and I think we all are opening surgeries up more, and um, there's less of that restriction. So I think... It, GPs practices should make it a priority that they're encouraging doctors, nurses, the whole medical team to meet up regularly just for a bit of pastoral support between each other. Um, the other thing I would say is if, if a doctor's behaving out of character or any member of staff's behaving out of character um, and they need to have a discussion about that, for example, I was spoken to about my um, becoming irritable with a member of staff I suppose asking the question why why is this what's this this is unusual behavior for this doctor why are they behaving like this and then ask the question Keep, not be afraid to ask the question of um, members of staff that might be struggling um, you know that GP trainee who asked me if I was burnt out I don't know whether things would have been different if he hadn't said that to me a couple more weeks before I went off um, because other things took hold but I think having the strength to say to members of staff, do you think you're burnt out? Because sometimes the staff member has no insight themselves and can't can't see it themselves. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a really difficult one because obviously you don't want to be asking your staff members if they're burnt out because you don't want them to go off sick. But equally, if you let it carry on and on and on, they'll end up going off for longer. 
probably. No, indeed. So kind of look to what a GP might be able to do and what practice can potentially do as well. But if we look at it from a central point of view, you know, at central level, what more can be done from the NHS overall? Um, the whole NHS, that's a whole other podcast, I think, in terms of <laughs> how to address our, our workload. But I think there is a glimmer of hope within the NHS appraisal process. Um, I recently had an appraisal um, which had been delayed by six months because I'd had time off, where um, in the preparation for the appraisal, for the first time ever, I was asked to rate my um, my mood uh, from one to ten. So it was essentially doing a depression score on me um, before before my appraisal. And um, having just been through this whole process myself, I, I asked my appraiser, I said, what do you do with that information? Because luckily I'm feeling better, so my my rating was um was was fine and there was no indication on my scoring that I had any any struggle but she my appraiser knew about what had happened to me so I asked her the question what do you do with that information if 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 someone you're about to appraise says to you that their you know their their score is high suggesting that they, they could well be depressed or anxious what do you do with that information she said well we don't ignore it it's important and we are now advised by the um by the appraisal process that we have to signpost those GPs that are struggling and I think that's brilliant and I'm so encouraged by that because the appraisal process happens every year and it'll be a way of perhaps identifying doctors that are struggling sooner rather than later signposting them to practitioner health early being able to give them support perhaps whilst they're still working rather than when they've got so bad they needed the time off so that's encouraging because Six months before I went off um, myself, I'd had an appraisal, which on reflection, if I'd been asked that question then, I think my risk of burnout would have been picked up. And I think I might have ended up being signed off sooner, but not having needed quite so much time off. So I'm really encouraged by that. And that's really positive that they've addressed that within the appraisal process. Brilliant. Uh... So earlier you were talking about the the survey that the um, GMC had done for trainers. What more can be done on that? What can those surveys be used for? So what can a GMC be doing? Well, yeah, I mean, I um, I think that as, as it's great that they've identified this fifty three percent increased risk of burnout, um, and they've fed that information to the government, so the government is aware. But actually, why not use that annual survey to signpost? patient uh, signpost GPs so it, it can be anonymous but if someone does come up when they're asking being asked those questions that they are at moderate or high risk why not have a pop-up that comes up on the survey to say your answer suggests that you could be close to burnout here's the number for you to consider ringing practitioner health and that would be a really easy intervention actually um, and that again might signpost more people more quickly Indeed. Now, the the polarising topic to end all polarising topics. You mentioned the government are aware. Yeah. Uh, what can the, what can the government do? Uh, so difficult. Um, more GPs, but how do you achieve that? I mean, it's been bandied around for a long time. Previously, five thousand more. Now six thousand, and I think that's been brushed under the carpet again now. But. Um, I don't know. I personally, and I 
this is my personal view that I think the government needs to be embracing digital digital technology more than they are. Um, and recognizing the advances that were made uh, were forced on us during the pandemic and supporting us as general practitioners to be able to deliver general practice in a more digit, digitally, I can never say that, digitally savvy way, uh, recognizing that a lot of the proportion of our patients um, are very comfortable with digital technology now. And there is a role for both. There are definitely that cohort of patients that need to be seen and examined, but there's a big proportion of patients that can be adequately cared for remotely via video or telephone consultation. And by doing it remotely, you're um, providing efficiencies for the practice because they'll be done more quickly. Um, and even some patients don't even need to speak to a GP. Things can be done um, via um, text messaging. Um, and some patients, particularly those at work, really appreciate that because they don't have to take any time out for a, uh, to go and see the GP or take any time out from their meeting. They can answer uh, questions via text message and get an answer to their problem. And all of these things are here and they're all available. And I think that getting the government to back general practice in in sort of embracing those changes rather than the retrograde, you must start seeing all of your patients face to face if they want to, um, is wrong. Um, there's a big thing about continuity of care, but how can you have continuity of care if you've got a big proportion of general practitioners that are completely overwhelmed and overworked and the only way they're surviving is by not working every day of the week. How can you achieve continuity of care in the same old fashioned way, you know, single-handed practices used to do all those years ago? Um, it, um, I think stop trying to shoehorn the old way of working to meet the needs that uh, have changed enormously over the last 10, 15 years of, of the practice, of, of the patients we're serving. Absolutely. Finally, on this on this part of it, a bit of a loaded question, but the media, what can they do or rather not do? <laughs> uh, stop doctor bashing, as I said before. Um, support us, recognise and value our, our role. Um, it's the family doctor used to be, um, you know, held in respect. And now, uh, certainly within the media, we're sort of seen as the, the bad guys and that we're causing the problem, uh, particularly in terms of, um, you know, the constant discussion about patients not being able to see their GP. And that's why hospitals are full. And we all know that hospitals are full because there's an inadequate social care at the other end so that people can't be discharged. So stop using us general practitioners as a scapegoat and recognise that we're human too and we're working as hard as we possibly can and continuously continuous negative comments in the media and also social media is um probably leading to burnout and early retirement amongst general practice which is perpetuating the problem um, and they need yeah, to take yeah. responsibility yeah, yeah absolutely um so Kind of want to emphasize again the fact that this is a good news story. You know, this is about um, you know coming out the other side. Um, so you're at a point now where we're where we're looking back. What are the lasting effects though um, of burnout or, or having timed off sick? Um, what it's done for me is it's given me, it's made me recognize that I can't 
work as a GP if I'm not and I, and give as much as I want to to my patients if I'm not looking after myself. And I think in order to um, to give that much to my patients, I need to be protecting my work life balance much better and actually allowing me to be able to work in a way that means I can give to my patients and to my family and and there's still to be something left for me to enjoy enjoy my own time as well um it's not easy and I think I'm having been through what I've been through now I am careful not to overcommit to things and I and I'm make sure I give myself time each week that's just for me and I don't commit to things on a certain day of the week so that I've got that time just for me um because I I love being a GP and I love helping people. That's why that's why I went into the profession. Um, but yeah, it's all about setting boundaries to make sure that I'm not overstretching myself. Um, Has it changed your outlook on being a GP? Uh, yes and no. I think. Um, it has, because I think I recognize, I think in the past, I probably wanted to try and um, react against the system. Um, and uh, now I'm trying, I'm trying to accept that I, I can't give more of myself than I have. And, um, you know, I, I think the big thing, and I've spoken to my husband about this a lot, is that I'm trying to stop and I think this is probably true of a lot of doctors and particularly general practitioners is that we feel identified by our role as a GP. And I think recognizing that there is more to us as individuals than being GPs and that we have other qualities and another part to our life gives more balance um, and stops you perhaps giving so much of yourself to your work to the detriment of home life. Absolutely. Uh... So we touched on kind of what could or maybe should have been done differently at, at the start of that journey. Um, what advice would you give to a GP returning from time off with stress or burnout? I think um, the key is to take it really slowly and to listen to the advice of, of, of your GP or practitioner health who might be supporting you or your counsellor. And don't rush back. Allow them to be objective for you because I think it's really hard to not have this constant feeling that you need to get back to work soon so that you're not leaving your colleagues firefighting in your absence and accepting that you've, you've burnt out and you need that time to recover properly. And if you rush back, um, you could end up in a bigger hole later down the line. And so take the advice of the people looking after you. And I think it's really difficult as doctors to take advice from other people, from, from other healthcare professionals. But once you accept that, um, you know, I think that helps enormously. And when you do go back, don't rush back. Um, and most importantly, question whether you should go back to the same job, whether that's the right job for you and what changes need to be made to make it the right job for you and have that conversation uh, with your employers. There's whilst I was um, under practitioner health, they recommended I um, got some um, life coaching through an organization called Project 5, which is um, well worth people being aware of. Um, it's You get three sessions through Project 5 with a life coach who is a professional life coach, and they normally 
charge quite a lot of money, but there's any, any, any member of the NHS can access this. And I found it incredibly useful because it gave me the opportunity to work out what my strengths and weaknesses were, the things that got me stressed, the things that gave me the most enjoyment through work. And it helped me to work out how I could go back to work and avoid becoming overly stressed and burnt out again in the future. So highly recommend accessing that. Brilliant. Uh, so other side of the fence, what advice would you give to a practice um, to support a returning GP? Um, give them time. Um, obviously talk through a phased return um, and ensure that there's regular catch-up time as well um, and ensure that I, I certainly when I went back to work, I was significantly slower than I'd been before and I'd lost a lot of my confidence having had time off. And I think recognising that a GP coming back to work after burnout is going to need more time. Uh, it's not going to get through consultations in 10 minutes and might need longer, might need a bit of catch-up time between each patient as well, and might need to talk through patients a bit more with um, with their colleagues um, until their confidence levels come up. And it doesn't take long, but that's a real fear. And I think that fear could lead to someone not going back as soon as, as they they could if they feel they're just going to be thrown back in the deep end again. Yeah, indeed. Um, listen, it's been you know, really, really uh, thought-provoking speaking with you today, Joe. I mean, uh, closing remarks, uh, you know, how how do you feel now after the whole experience, the whole journey? Um, uh, you know, what would you, what would you say to others in a similar position? Um, I'm really glad that you invited me to do this today. And I'm really glad that I've come out the other side and I can share my experiences because I feel passionate about raising awareness of this. And I hope that this podcast might, um, you know, prompt some other people uh, to think about seeking some help early. I know that having come out the other side, I'm a better doctor, um, both in terms of the experience of having mental health issues myself. I'm much more able now to support my patients with mental health issues but more importantly I've got a renewed uh, renewed energy levels um renewed renewed sense of enthusiasm for the job um and a sense of reward and I've missed that for for years but that's back because I've taken steps to ensure the work that I do now is not impacting on my work-life balance and allows me to uh, have some um, downtime as well. And yeah, and I, I think my patients um, are better cared for because I'm caring for myself. Yeah, well said. Uh, Dr. Joe Davis, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you're a practice looking to recruit permanent clinicians, such as GPs, nurses or allied health staff, please get in touch at menloparkrecruitment.com or email james at menloparkrecruitment.com. For daily primary care news, please follow Menlo Park Recruitment on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast.